Hello. Hello and welcome to Liars Lee, where writers write, actors read, audience listens, and everybody wins. The date is the 13th. The sky is black. The moon has turned to blood and back again. The killer asteroid is coming, and politicians are doing terrible things to dead pigs, the NHS, and the disabled. So it's time for our spooky Halloween-themed signs and omens. We'll have six, six, six stories to chill you to the bone. Three in the first half, then an interval where you can attempt to escape the fate that surely awaits you. Before we return with the infamous Liars League book quiz. And three more ominous tales. Now, there are many forms of divination. The reading of palms, of tea leaves, of the flights of birds. Then there's sternomancy. The art of telling the future, normally that you're about to get slapped by reading the bumps of the chest. <laughs> In this modern age, we have Nokiamancy, predicting the future by the unwanted and uncalled for sounds of mobile phones. So, unless you want a very bleak outlook indeed, please turn those phones off or to silence. Thank you. And so our first story of the evening will be The Hotel Entrance by Brindley Hallam Dennis, we read by Silas Hawkins. Brindley writes short stories which have been performed by liars in London, New York, Hong Kong, and elsewhere. He lives on the edge of England within sight of three mountain tops and a sliver of the Solway Firth. Silas is continuing the family voiceover tradition. He is the son of Peter Dalek Hawkins and Rosemary Emergency Ward 10 Miller. Favourite voice credits, Summertown Mill, Latin Music USA, and podcasts for the register. Silas! <laughs> the Hotel Entrance by Brindley Hallam Dennis. I don't believe in ghosts, I said. So how do you explain it? He raised a quizzical eyebrow. The fact is, whatever you don't understand, because you aren't in possession of all the facts, seems like magic or the supernatural, I told him. Then I went on to recount some examples I read of in books about people with extraordinary abilities, like, like that uh, the kid who used to see the reflection of shapes drawn on cards in the eyes of the person who was asking him the questions. He, he didn't even know he was doing it, I said, but he only got the answers right when the light was in the right position and the researcher was looking at the pictures. The guy in the ghost suit rolled his head from side to side and I could see from the expression on his face that he wasn't convinced. 
to say I didn't like that head rolling, especially when he rolled it from one hand to the other. <laughs> he tucked it back, snugly, under his arm. So how do you think I'm doing this? Well, I don't know, I said. Yeah, but it's got to be one of those David Copperfield-type tricks. You think so? Look, look, I said, if you'd really pulled your head off, there'd be blood all over the carpet. I splayed an open hand down towards our feet. Uh, uh, the carpet was worn. It was a little grubby, too, to be honest. But there was no blood. He pulled a lopsided grin took his head in both hands and lifted it back onto his shoulders. I can see I'm wasting my time, he said. Look, <laughs> look, 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 I said. I give you full marks for trying. Can't be easy these days, what with all the CGI and special effects. The problem is, I've seen it all before. There's nothing new under the sun. He shook his head, in sorrow and disbelief, I guess, and it wobbled precariously, which I thought was rather a nice touch. And then he started to fade away. Uh, I could see he was disappointed. I'll still pay the check, I said. You guys have earned your money. I don't feel cheated at all. I... I tried to reassure him, but as he vanished into thin air and I found myself staring at the bare wall once more, you could see there was a look of unhappiness in his ghostly white face. It's okay, I said, tilting my head up to the ceiling, which is where I guessed the sound system must be located. I've had a great evening. <laughs> it's been fun. Of course, there was no response. <laughs> they could hardly let on, could they? Would have spoiled the illusion. Even though they must have realized by then that as far as I was concerned, that's all it was. Just an illusion. Well, after that, it was just an ordinary night. In an ordinary, if somewhat run-down, hotel, Confess, I was a little worried about the, the, the possibilities of hidden cameras. I, I mean, I sleep raw, you know? But, but I kept my boxers on that night just in case. <laughs> the fact is, what they really needed, rather than trying to sell themselves as some spooky niche market venue, was to spend some money on general refurbishment. It wasn't as if they were marketing themselves effectively. I hadn't stayed over on account of knowing it was a haunted hotel. As far as I, was, as far as I could tell, they, they weren't making anything of it. They, they weren't promoting it. They hadn't even added a premium to the cost of the room, although you could argue that the price would have been too expensive at any price, considering the state of the decor. I'd only stayed over 
because I'd been on the road all day and had obviously missed my turn somewhere around Brigadoo-Doo because my road they had been getting narrower and narrower for the last few miles and was obviously going nowhere. And then, well, what with the weather closing in like that, well, I just needed a place to stay. It wasn't the fact that the signboard, which, let me tell you, could also have done with a lick of paint, proclaimed to be the Haunted House Hotel, that drew me in. It was the fact that it was any damned hotel by the time I got that far. <laughs> oh, gee. <laughs> when the bell bowl came off in my hand, and I was standing there on the doorstep, in the mist, listening to that foghorn chime, that seemed to be coming from the bowels of the earth, and I'd got a yard and a half of rusty wire in my hand and a hole in the wall that looked like you'd see through to eternity in the other hand. And that's when it hit me what the name of the game was. Oh. <laughs> you have to give it to him. The phony bell pull was a masterstroke. And the creak on those door hinges when the old guy answered. <laughs> <laughs> it was just pure hammer. But, and I was thinking this at the time, it's all been done before. I mean, there's nothing new about it. Okay, okay, it was fun. The old guy was fun, but yeah, they could have gone a bit lighter on the musty smell. Particularly when he was serving dinner, which I must admit did look like fricassee of corpse. Well, and the pink sauce with it, well, oh, that was salty. But, 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 there is a point when playing the game becomes a little tedious. Now, I'm all in favor of being thorough. I work in the movies. Well, we, 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 we finance a couple of studios, and, and I know about back projection and green screens and stuff, and I'm as much a fan of good prosthetics as the next man, but... To be honest, all I really wanted was a bed for the night and a good night's sleep. You can overdo the, uh, the cobwebs and dead spiders, you know. And what's it all for if you haven't got your advertising right? Have you ever heard of this place? <laughs> but no. No, 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 no. What they should have had at the very least, was a big new sign on the turnoff from the highway and then some leaflets or cards on the reception desk that you could take. And what about Wi-Fi? <laughs> well, if they had it, they weren't letting on. And of course they had it. If you have the technology to project the ghost, you certainly are not going to be without the Wi-Fi. <laughs> I mean, they did it really well. But if you haven't got any customers, what's it all for? <laughs> I mean, I was the only paying guest in the place that night, and I'm not surprised. Nice try, guys, but that ain't the way to run a business. No siree. So, when I drove past a couple of days later on my way back, I wasn't surprised to find the place had closed down. What did surprise me was how quickly they'd cleared the site. I mean, it wasn't just the old sign gone, the whole building was missing. You couldn't even 
see where it stood. called Lisa Marie, after the daughter of the legendary hip shaker, Elvis. By day, she works with foster carers and young people. By night, she reads in the shower, cooks best without a recipe, wages scrabble wars against her husband, and starts many stories she rarely finishes. Nikki trained at the bridge, TTC. Credits include The Railroad Children, Two, Arthur of Camelot, Romeo and Juliet, Caucasian Chalk Circle, Midsummer's Night Dreaming, Sense and Sensibility, A Christmas Cow, and Cranford at Christmas. Nikki! Kalamantan by Lisa Bates. They followed Tanabi through the, through the rainforest for eight days before they glimpsed the first mountain. The flesh on their feet remained raw, and their faces were striped with earth and perspiration. They carried as much as they could manage, their belongings trailing behind them like the tail of a runaway kite. After the third day, the echo of foreign voices gave way to the song of the citadel. In the newfound quiet, the children vocalised their losses without restraint. It would take time before they would learn why the adults did not look back. Tanabi put down his knapsack on the banks of the Borak River as his people waited, their almond eyes watchful beneath the ironwood trees. He lifted his son in both hands and raised him up to the mountain, and something like triumph crossed his face. Kalamantan was still home. They raised a village from the ground using what they could find. The children collected palm leaves and bamboo, which the huntsmen packed into branch huts elevated on high wooden posts. In the mornings, the people of the village seeded millet and rice, and in the evenings they smoked catfish and barb on fires as the sun fell over the river. On the hundredth day, an elder from the Bandar clan came to Tanabi with a vision. Her mouth was a crimson tunnel in a face scrunched with age and endurance. She spoke of a creature with the head of a dragon and the hind of a snake. Its name was Makura, and its jaws were filled with the blood of Kalamantan. Tanabi fastened his eyes to the door as she spoke, his fingers flexing along his palm as though brushing off sand. When the old woman finished speaking, he thanked her and sent her home, dismissing the vision as a nightmare with prongs made sharp by the potency of the betel nut. That night, as Tanabi reached his hut, he saw a young girl by the banks of the river. She wandered close to the water, hovering along its edge as though in sleep. Tanabi scooped her up and carried her back to her mother. He spoke at length about the dangers of the water and returned home late, sinking into a deep sleep. In the morning, he awoke to a great commotion. The girl was gone. Tanabi summoned the group of young warriors and divided them in two. They searched the banks for many hours, going all day without food. Only when nightfall set in did Tanabi order his men to return to the village. 
A weight of silence met them there. Something had passed between the women in the absence of the men. Tanabi's wife stepped forward into the firelight and told Tanabi what she knew. The young girl was restless in sleep, restless in waking. A number of women had seen her walking the riverside at dusk. The girl's mother was unable to accept the explanation offered by the actions of her daughter. The girl had run away. Tanabi was uneasy. He watched the mother's face, drawn taut with anxiety and felt by osmosis the woman's desperation. He did not sleep well that night. In his dream, the mouth of the old woman became a red-headed snake which coiled itself tightly around his neck. He choked himself awake, his wife, rising from sleep beside him, startled. His head was still rife with the pestilence of his nightmare, and his wife rose to fetch him some water to wash his face. When she returned, her urn was empty, and she held something small in her left hand. She placed the object in his upturned palm. It was a wooden doll, turned smooth to the touch by many years of handling. Its edges were fringed rust-red. He recognised it. It belonged to his niece. She had vanished in the night. He knew, rather than feared, that there was something out there. The certainty of it sat in his stomach like a flat rock in a gravel bed. He convened the elders, sending the message that a hunter was preying on the children of the village. As he walked towards the bank of huts, towards the meeting point, he felt light-headed, like he was a shadow walking behind himself. From the corner of his eye, he saw the villagers huddled in threes and fours, staring fearfully at the river. Children sat, shackled to the ankles of their parents by invisible tethers, as though the mothers worried that a lack of caution would invite the monster to pick their child over the others. When Tanabi arrived, the Council of Elders sat solemnly. Some nodded, some banged their walking sticks to acknowledge his presence. He told them everything. The girl by the river, the search, his niece. Two disappearances in two days. The children unsafe, the villagers worried. Through his words, the creature responsible grew into a beast of myth and legend, as permanent and mighty as the river itself. It was Muratus, the head of the council, who reminded him that, though the river had taken many lives before, Tanavi would not speak of it in this way. The river was just a river. It did not know how to be anything else. The council decided that the village must lay a trap for the creature. Many ideas were suggested. A wooden cage, a wall of spears, an adult put out to tempt it whilst all the children were stowed away. The old woman from the Bandar clan stood. Throughout the meeting, her eyes had not left Tanabi's face. It must be a child, she said, and it must be your own. There was a globule of silence which dispersed around them. Tanabi put the question to the council, and one by one, they slowly raised their hands. His subsequent nod was more of a shrug of the head. When he walked back to his wife, his feet felt cloven like muddy hooves. That afternoon, he sat down beside his eldest son and explained the plan. The boy had Tanabi's jaw and he set it as he listened, stealing his mouth in a single expression of determination. He would do it, of course he would do it. His cousin was among its victims, his father was their leader. 
It was his duty. In the pauses, he forced himself to push his lips together so they would not tremble. When darkness fell, the boy sat on the banks of the Borak River. He thought of how his mother, unable to look him in the face, had combed his hair with a hundred strokes. When the creature came, he heard it rather than saw it. The chirps and vibrations of the insect chorus gave way to the movement of the water. At first, a careless sloshing. He sat with his back to the rising shadow, his legs crossed and his head upright. The noise ratcheted up until it sounded like the rushing of a waterfall, and the boy was unable to discern one droplet from another. When he could bear it no longer, he swivelled his neck to behold the surface of the river. He squinted in disbelief at the creature ascending before him. Its head alone was the length of three men laid head to toe. It was neither dragon nor snake. Its nostrils were ridged and prominent, and its eyes flat and fish-like, with slits at the centre that widened at the sight of him. In the moonlight it looked silver, but in the days to come, the warriors would say it was deep brown. The last Tanabi saw of Makura was its throat. Its nostrils flared and fired water at such a pace that the shots to his face and stomach left him in another consciousness. Rage made men reckless. Tanabi commanded the warriors not to slay the creature on the riverbank. All afternoon, the villagers had whittled the ironwood trees into the spears and axes of war. Now the warriors alternately brandished and clutched their weapons as they moved through the trees, following the creature's descent down the river. It swam like a snake, propelling itself effortlessly as it clutched Tanabi's son in its jaws. Tanabi could not meet the eyes of his men as they searched his face. He thought of the Guapayao cave and the, de the deer who went there to lick the salt-bearing rocks and find shelter. After a time, the beast led them to a cavern perched on the banks of the Burak River. A muddy slope ran up to the mouth of the cave, and Tanabi thought he could see silhouettes moving inside. As Makura ascended the entrance of its den, a guttural cry came from within. It sounded like murder, and it sounded like joy. Tanabi raised his spear and led the charge of Dayak warriors over the threshold. Three of the men brought with them sticks of fire, and they went in first, setting alight the cave's interior in a flare of brightness. Tanabi's son was sprawled on the floor of the cave next to a small creature, unlike any the villagers had seen before. In the corner, Makura used its body to shield another beast almost as large and magnificent as itself. Tanabi stepped forward and held up his hand. The warriors formed a semicircle behind him. Something passed between the snake eyes of one and the almond eyes of the other. Then Tanabi raised his spear and plunged it into the creature's side. Its screech filled the cave and ricocheted off the walls. It flailed as it fell hard against the ground. Tanabi raised his hand again and beckoned the warriors forward. The second creature sniffed its fallen mate and lowered its head as if to strike. The warriors raised their weapons and ran forward, thrusting and hollering as they brought the creature down. Tanabi knelt at the side of his son, who was drifting awake. The boy opened his eyes, and Tanabi cradled his head, helping him to sit. The warriors looked to the little creature. In the firelight, its soft yellow belly trembled as it cowered against the wall. Its scales were a kaleidoscope of colours, like the skin of a rainbow. One of the warriors found a stack of skeletons in another chamber of the cave. 
he counted eight small skulls. The warriors called for no mercy. This dragon child would one day grow into Makura. The village would not be safe until it was dead. Tanabi's son rose to his knees and crawled over beside the dragon. Its neck was the width of a coconut palm, and he put his arms around it, refusing to move despite entreaty. He said that both sides had made sacrifices, and that Dyax did not take the guiltless, the life of the guiltless in war. He said that this night was a promise, and neither would now harm the other for as long as each survived. The cave fell quiet, all eyes turning to Tanabi. As leader, he decreed that his son spoke the truth. The ancient tradition of headhunting would be upheld as a token of this agreement. As his son sat with the little dragon, the carcasses of the great creatures were dragged outside and their heads removed and tethered. The rest of the bodies they gave to the river. Eight warriors were selected to carry the bones of the victims back to the village and ten more to haul the dragon's heads. With a gentle squeeze, Tanabi's son took his father's hand and left the cave. Dawn was coming, and the water on the Burak River was tinged pink in the early light. The warriors, their faces striped with earth and perspiration, started down the river, the heads of the two Makura trailing behind them. Tanabi paused and raised his son up to the mountain. Kalamantan was still home. The third story, and the last one before the interval, will be locked in by Liam Hogan, read by Carrie Cohen. Liam is a liar of long standing and was recently a finalist in Cyphers LA's Roswell Award, where he was up against Grandma's sex robot and lost. <laughs> Carrie's recent work includes playing Miss Tarleton in Miss Alliance and Hetty in Gout voicing characters for films, The Wake and Bad Advice, reading stories for Arachne Press, and continuing to be seen strutting her stuff in the Spectator Center. <laughs> Carrie! Locked in by Liam Hogan. call what I have locked-in syndrome. I'd ask a doctor, a neurosurgeon perhaps if I could, which I can't, and if they weren't in such short supply. But it's always the way with epidemics. Medical staff get hit hardest. First responders as well, the police and the paramedics and then the army, and finally anyone stupid enough to volunteer. Ah, that would be me. Won't be doing that again. Still, I keep looking for men in white coats, keep wandering the echoing hospital, hoping against hope that I can take control of my errant body for just long enough to impart my message. That's me. Not looking to be saved. I figure it's too late for that. The rot, it would appear, has set in. 
but I'm still looking to say. I was always that sort of girl. Three blood donations a year, queen of charity cupcake bakes, and of course, stepping forward in a crisis when I would have been much better off hiding in a cellar with all the other end-of-the-world preppers. But I keep trying to do my best. The problem is, my body won't cooperate. <laughs> Back when the epidemic started, when it was all new and weird and worrying in a that can't possibly happen to me way, can it? Everybody misread the signs. The doctors thought it was a virus that attacked the brain, eating away at the higher processes until just a cerebellum was left, barely enough grey matter to coordinate motion and to seek food. Any food. Anything the afflicted could still manage to open or catch. So, not cans or bottles or anything that needed cooking. They were too stupid and clumsy for that. No dogs or cats or birds either. They were too slow for that. Which only really left other human beings. No wonder the government issued advice to shoot the zombies in the head when commenting failed when they ran out of medical staff to investigate the outbreak further. But they were wrong, all wrong. I'm proof of that if I could but tell them, if I could pass on the message. And I assume all the rest of the shambling horde are the same. Active minds locked in the bodies of monsters. You can hardly blame the authorities. It's hard to strap an ECG to someone who's trying to eat you. <laughs> or, is, or is that for the heart? The C, that, that's cardio, isn't it? Or what's the name for the thing they strap to your head? Measures brainwave activity. Well, if you could get one of those onto my skull, it'd light up like a Christmas tree. Because the higher functions aren't dead, they're disconnected. Something is interfering with the way the mind controls the body, the link between that fabulously wrinkled surface and the more primitive and ancient reptilian brainstem. It's not a complete disconnection, I guess, and not quite. There are still signs of intelligence, of humanity. When I lurch towards a victim, that's me, or the mind part of me anyway, trying to give that unfortunate every chance to escape, trying to stop myself, the feral body part of me, doing what it insists on doing. It doesn't work very well, though. I can't control the beastly body. It just makes my movements jerky. Well, more jerky. Slow zombie rather than fast zombie. <laughs> but it's the best I can do. I can't even close my eyes to not see the grisly end when it comes. And I get to hear it and smell it 
and ultimately taste it as well. Sometimes, and I hate, truly hate to admit this, I don't even bother to resist until it's too late. Because I know that lesser part of me is only doing what it must to survive. And I know if it doesn't eat, then my brain, the only part that's still truly me, doesn't get fed either. Which, for a former vegetarian... <laughs> if I could, I'd tell that body of mine how to get food without chasing and hunting and tearing apart other humans, just like I'd used to. I tell it how to op operate a can opener or, or what to do with a frozen pizza. But I can't. I'm locked in. So, as my idiot body tumbles a ripped off head in its gore-slicked hands, staring into its glazed eyes as if trying to work out how to get to the good bits, what my shifford university-educated brain is doing is imagining piping chocolate frosting onto cupcakes all Hollywood would be proud of. The rest of the great British bake-off team bursting into sudden applause and... Did... Did... Did my hands just move together? As if to join in that applause? And did my numb tongue try to whisper a Mary Berry, well done? <laughs> I do believe. Yes, I'm as elated as if I'd been voted star baker, as if all those hours of cooking and decorating had finally been rewarded. Maybe that's the key. Maybe it isn't my upper brain moving those hands, animating those lips. Maybe it's my muscle memory. Either way, those hissed words, mangled though they were, that movement of hand towards hand, ignoring the raised skull, those almost imperceptible reassertions of my mind's control over my body, they make me want to redouble my efforts to communicate, to pass on this vital bit of information to someone who will understand who can do something with the knowledge, knowledge that might, just might, swing things back in mankind's favour. Assuming that there's anyone left to listen. As if in answer to my prayers, that there's a clatter from the east wing, followed by a muffled curse. The afflicted might cause a clatter, but I'm pretty sure I've never heard one swear. By now, the unlit corridors of the hospital are familiar to me. I don't even have to check the map as I lurch past reception. I stood before it for senseless hours before now. I think my zombie self likes all the bright primary colours. Well, hospital beige can get pretty depressing, I suppose. The sound came from the neurology department. There are none of the afflicted in there, I know, and I have to date been unable to enter myself. 
Double doors swinging outwards are apparently totally zombie proof. Still entirely sure if the thing that is lurching down the corridor is my zombie body, drawn by sounds that might indicate a walking larder has strayed into the area, in which case I'm probably not going to be the only one to answer the summons, or if my brain is influencing my actions. I look down at my twisted ankle at the white shard sticking out the side of my oh-so-sensible flat shoes. It's a good thing I can't feel the pain. That one sense, thankfully, doesn't make it across the neurological divide. But the noise, the constant grating, the lurid colours as the infection moves up the limb, the sickly, sweet smell... Well, that's another matter. The double doors are now propped open by a fire extinguisher, which is either incredibly stupid or incredibly smart. My body doesn't stop to work out which, and I begin to suspect what little control I have is really rather pitiful. I try to go back to my bake-off moment. I have to concentrate. I have to think. There's a shaft of light in the green. A torch. I, I almost trip over a loaded trolley. Uh, my heart, if it was under my control, would have skipped a beat to see what it was loaded with. A couple of laptops. Banks of test tubes. Wired equipment that looks like something out of a sci-fi movie. This is obviously not your run-of-the-mill scavenger after food and basic needs. This person has purpose, learning, and a gun. A really rather large gun. I struggle to lift my hands to show that I mean no harm as I lurch towards him, as the cannon in his hand shakes. I suppose I should feel more scared. But this, this is the one. I can feel it. This is the man who can solve the puzzle and maybe cure the illness or at least stop its spread. Well, what else would he be doing here collecting scientific equipment? All he needs is a sign. All he needs is to know that inside this shambling, blood-splattered, maggot-infested form approaching him is a keen, alive, intelligent brain that maybe someone like him could learn to work out how to reconnect. I lurch closer. Summon all my strength and willpower to drag my finger upwards until it taps the side of my skull. I draw ragged breath and with Herculean effort I gasp my one word message. Brains! <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you, Carrie. The bar is open, and if predictions are correct, there will be no hangovers tomorrow. Because there will be no tomorrow. So drink up! The world is about to end. You have 20 minutes. 